So last week, uh, we looked at who we are as the body of Christ, and the way that we defined that, one of the ways, was by looking at us as a missionary family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, united by God to Christ, with a mission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded as we await his return. In order to further kind of cement that reality into our minds this morning, we're going to dig a bit deeper into this concept by looking at two aspects of our identity as the body of Christ from 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking specifically at verses 9 through 12. As I mentioned last week, understanding our identity is vital in fulfilling our mission. So let's start by reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. If I can have somebody read that for us. Thanks, Vivian. So what we see from this is that the first aspect of our identity that we want to look at is our status, our status. Now, before we kind of get into how Peter describes our status here, um, I want you to notice with me here those, the, that transition that happens at the beginning of verse 9, where it says, but you... Okay, so he's contrasting it to what he has said previously. In the prior verses, what Peter had been talking about was Jesus being the chosen and precious cornerstone that many had rejected. And they stumbled over this cornerstone, as the scripture says here, because they have disobeyed the gospel. That is, they didn't believe it when they heard it. However, those to whom Peter is writing by grace have believed this message. And so he tells us who we are as believers. So he says, here's these people over here, they haven't believed it, but you have. And on that basis, here's who you are as the body of Christ. Okay, so we're going to look at these in list form as they are laid out for us here. And the first thing that we see here, the first up on the list is, we are a chosen race. Now, beginning with this phrase and moving on through the rest of verse 9 and into verse 10, what Peter does here is he strings together a series of titles that were attributed to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and he uses them here to show that their fulfillment is found in both believing Jews and believing Gentiles, which make up the true people of God. He reminds us of this, that as the body of Christ, we are a chosen race. We are a people whom God has set his electing love upon before the foundation of the world, okay? And what were we chosen for? Look with me here at the beginning of verse 7. It says this, So the honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you who believe. We were chosen to believe. Now that is an unspeakable privilege that we have been given. What we see scripture testifying is that before the foundation of the world, God decided to cause you to believe the gospel when it came to you. Perhaps you believed it when it came to you the first time. Perhaps you believed it when it came to you the 50th time, right? But whatever that may be, there was a time that God chose you to believe it. And this is not to be taken for granted because we recognize that not everyone believes, Right? We recognize that God has chosen out of his own free mercy and sovereign will, not because of anything in us at all. Right? There wasn't anything in us that intellectually superior or we had the ability to grasp it better. 
We were like all other men. And, and, and what this should cause, an understanding of this, is just great humility as we recognize what God has done for us in Christ. And that humility ought to be bent out as we bring the gospel to other people. We ought never to think ourselves superior to those who don't yet believe the gospel. We recognize that only by the grace of God have I believed it. And now God is using me as an instrument to bring the gospel to this person so that they too might believe it. And so it should cause great humility. We should never have a superior attitude. We don't come pridefully as if we've done something to attain the status that we have as children of God. We ought to be a very humble people as we witness because we recognize that the only distinction in this moment or in that moment between me and this unbeliever is that God has opened my blind eyes and that our prayer is that he might open theirs as well. So this understanding of being a chosen race should cause both great joy and great humility to arise within us. What I also want you to see from this is that we are a chosen race. Okay, so the first part kind of focused on the chosen, but now the aspect of we are a chosen race. In other words, we have a common heritage, a common ancestor, if you will, that ties us all together. We looked at that last week. By nature, our ancestor was Adam. By grace, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Revelation 5.9 that through the sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of his blood, he has ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So he's taken us from all our different physical ethnicities and he's brought us together into one family, the body of Christ. Right? Those barriers drop as we recognize we're in this together as the body of Christ. Edmund Clowney put it this way, I like this, he says, Christians are blood relatives joined by the blood of Jesus Christ. This family that we are has stronger ties than any other family on the face of the earth. And the reason for that is because we are an eternal family, right? We're going to be with one another forever. And what an unspeakable privilege it is that God has called us to be his people. Okay? Now, the second way that Peter identifies this, he calls us a chosen race, and then he also tells us that we're a royal priesthood. A little background on this phrase, I think, is really helpful to understand what is said about us here. When God delivered Israel out of bondage from Egypt, he said to them in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Okay, in other words, Israel, upon keeping God's covenant, would have access into his presence, and they would be his faithful ministers. They would be a kingdom of of priests. However, what we see is that Israel was unable to keep God's covenant, and so rather than the whole nation having access into God's presence, only those chosen from the tribe of Levi would function as priests. And from that tribe, there would be only one to function as the high priest, okay, who alone would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year on the day of atonement. The other priests would minister in the holy place each day on behalf of the people. So there was this limited access into the presence of God by only a certain group of designated people from all the people of Israel. Now you fast forward into the New Testament, and one of the things that is astonishing at the crucifixion of Christ is what happens to the veil in the temple. Okay, it's torn from top to bottom, right? So Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, comes as not only the high priest, but also as the sacrifice. And he lays down his life, enters into the presence of God on behalf of his people. And as the writer of Hebrews says, not with blood of goats and calves, which could never take away sins, but with his own blood. And through this, what the writer of Hebrews says, it secures for his people an eternal redemption and access, listen to this, access for all 
into the presence of God. And so now every believer is a priest in the sense that we have access right into the presence of God. There is no distinction. That's an amazing reality. Through Jesus Christ, no matter your race, your rank, your vocation, or anything else, you have immediate access into the presence of God. In the New Covenant, access into God's presence is open to all his people, not just a select group. That's encouraging for us. Hallelujah. Amen. Sorry. Yeah, go I ahead. I'm going to sit here. Yeah, I'm going to sit here. Hey, listen, praises are uh, proper, so feel free to interject those at any time. And then one more point that I want us to see from this, and this is extremely important when we think about our mission of gospel proclamation. The reason that we're called a royal priesthood is because of the nature of our priesthood. We are ministers of the king, our Lord Jesus. And what we're doing is we're proclaiming his kingdom of which we are now a part. Colossians 1.13 reminds us this, that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are the king's ambassadors who are pleading with those outside of his kingdom to be reconciled to him, right? So when you think of the weight of that responsibility, the king of all kings has given you a responsibility, given us a responsibility as the body of Christ. And he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel unto every creature. Make disciples of all nations. So we have this edict coming from our king to go and do these things. And now we walk out as the body of Christ, as ambassadors, as a royal priesthood, proclaiming the gospel to this world. So Peter tells us we're a chosen race, we're a royal priesthood, and additionally, we're a holy nation. Peter again refers back here to Exodus 19.6 when God told Israel that they were a holy nation. And the point here is that the people of God, believing Jews and Gentiles, are those who have been set apart by God to be a distinct people in this world. Now, I want to talk about this for a second because there's two ways that the scripture describes us as being holy. And the first way that we are described as being holy is positionally. Okay? When we were converted, when God declared us righteous in his sight, we were set apart from the penalty and power of sin through the work of Jesus Christ. Okay? So we're no longer under the wrath of God like all mankind is by nature. And we're also no longer under the dominion of sin as we once were. Here's what Romans 6, 6 says. Somebody can read that for us. We know that our old self is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might not be, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Okay, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So, so God has set us apart from the penalty of sin. We're not under the wrath of God any longer because Christ has absorbed and exhausted the wrath of God fully on our behalf. And in addition to that, we are set apart from the power of sin. Sin does not have that dominion over us as it once did. So we're first positionally holy, and then secondly, we're practically holy, is what the scripture tells us. What this means is that God is setting us apart from the presence of sin. So we have been set apart from the power, um, from the penalty and the power of sin. We are being set apart from the presence of sin. That's important for us to understand. That's why the scripture can declare simultaneously that we are holy and at the same time call us to be holy. Right? Because positionally and practically. Okay? Those are the two aspects that we see. What we also see from this is that Peter is not inspired to say that we are holy individually, although we are, but that we are holy corporately. We are holy as a nation. We are a distinct people. We are foreign to this world as the body of Christ. 
All of those in this world who are not Christians, who are outside of Christ, are unholy, just as we once were. However, now that we're in Christ, we are holy. Okay? And, you know, I, I think it is a, a sad reality that many churches have bought into the false and unbiblical idea that in order to reach the world, we need to be just like the world. We have, we have to show them, these proponents of this would say, that we're not that different from them. And millions of dollars are being wasted to try to make church services appealing to unbelievers. Listen, when the purpose of the church is for the gathering and feeding of the people of God, a holy nation. There, there better be a distinctness about us that shows that we have been set apart from what we once were. It's a time for the people of God to come together as a holy nation to encourage one another through the various gifts given by the Holy Spirit and to be fed by his holy word. And listen, if and when unbelievers do come into the gathering of God's people, they should be coming into a holy environment that is distinct and foreign to this world, not something that just looks just like it. Okay? We see a good example of this in 1 Corinthians 14, where the Apostle Paul is helping the Corinthian church to understand the proper use of spiritual gifts, and he's telling them that it's necessary to speak the word of God in a language that is known to that congregation when they come together so that the body of Christ can be built up. But he also mentions another reason for this, and we see this in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy, if all are speaking the word of God, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you, right? So, so Paul's saying, if an unbeliever enters into your fellowship, here's what it should look like, right? That's what it should look like. That's the type of environment unbelievers should walk into when they come into the gathering of God's people. And, and Imagine a place where the gospel is being spoken and displayed not only by the pastor in the pulpit during the time of preaching, but by all who are in attendance so that no matter where an unbeliever turned, they would be hearing and seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There would be, just such, there would be gospel-centered conversations taking place all over. That's what Paul has in mind here. The unbeliever is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. He falls on his face. He worships God and declares, God is here. That, that, that's the testimony we want to leave, is it not? If an unbeliever departs, they may say, I hated that. There was something powerful about that, right? Or I'm captivated by that. And that's what we pray for, that God is working in that person's heart to help them to see their need for Christ. So that, that's what living as a holy nation produces. And again, that's just one example of what it means to be a holy nation. There are, there are others that I'm going to get into here in just a bit. Okay? So Peter here declares that we're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. And he now says we are God's own possession. We are God's own possession. And again, what Peter is doing here is he's pulling from the Old Testament, this time from Deuteronomy, to describe present-day believers. Let me have you take a look here at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, if somebody can read that for us. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it is because the Lord loves you. Okay, good. Thanks, Carlos. This is an amazing reality, isn't it? Listen, God has made us his treasured possession. That's an astounding reality. God has a special love for his people that is distinct 
from the general love that he displays to all others. And out of his love, he made us his possession, his own. That word possession in the original language means to acquire for a price. And indeed, we understand from Romans 5, 8 that God displayed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was his love that sent his son to make us his own possession. That's what it cost him to make us his own. As we reflect on that, I I hope what it does for us is it causes our hearts to be overwhelmed by the love that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. I hope it compels us to say with John here in 1 John 3, 1, Behold, look at this. Get your gaze fixed on this. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And this is mind-blowing. John is astounded. She's like, look at this. Think of this kind of love. What kind of love is this? Where the Son comes and he dies for his enemies to make them his friends. I think we have so much room to grow in our understanding of God's love for us. We see that, and I feel confident in saying that because Paul prays this way for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19. He's telling them, this is how he's praying for them, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. It's always astounding to me, right? He's, he's praying for them that they can comprehend something which surpasses their knowledge. There's, there, there's a depth to it that you'll grow in but never exhaust because it's that magnificent. You'll never stop growing in your knowledge of God's love for you. And and we pray that God would help us to understand the love that he has shown to us in his son that has made us his very own possession. Do you see how these, these things that are said about us shape how we go and minister the gospel to other people, right? This is like, I've got to tell people about the love that God has displayed for mankind through the work of his son. Well, somebody listen to me, right? This, is a, this would be gripping us. It's like, wow, this holy, righteous, just God has satisfied the demands of his justice through slaying his son, and in that has displayed his love and his mercy towards sinners. It compels us to want to go out and speak to people about what God has done. Now, go down with me here in, in verse 10. We're going to come back to the second half of verse 9, but I want to finish looking at our status as the body of Christ. Verse 10 tells us that once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And what we see here is that we are a pitied people. Not not a pitiful people, but a pitied people. (laughs) That is, those who have received mercy from God. The king. In verse 10 here, Peter again is referring to the Old Testament, this time from the book of Hosea. And through the prophet Hosea, the Lord, in speaking to the house of Israel, told them that they were no longer his people and that they, he would have no mercy on them because of their covenant-breaking rebellion against him. However, the Lord also said that a time would come when this people who were declared not to be his people and who had not received mercy would once again be called the people of God and therefore be recipients of his mercy. And Peter here takes that and applies it to the believing Jews and Gentiles that he's writing to. And I want you to think about this for a moment with me. Think back to the time before you were converted, before you became a Christian. At that time, you were not a part of the people of God. This this would have been a foreign thing to you coming into a gathering like this. You were one who had not received mercy from the Lord in the sense of salvation. 
We were a people governing our own lives, doing what seemed right in our own lives, living for the glory of ourselves rather than for the glory of God. And I think most of us probably thought that we were a people who, sure, we could probably use a little mercy here and there, but we don't really need mercy. Those people over there really need mercy. Right? Those people that I'm seeing on the news every night, right? those people need need the mercy. For the most part, I think we probably saw ourselves as probably pretty good people and how foolish we were in our thinking, right? Because we didn't understand the holiness and the righteousness of God. As Ephesians 4.18 says, somebody, it says something, it really does. It doesn't say that, though. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4.18. It was rather anticlimactic. Okay, Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They are darkened in their understanding. That's what we once were, darkened in our understanding. We think, yeah, I think I understand life and God and how all this works. And we were just totally darkened in that, right? We're just painting a picture in our own minds of what we thought God was like. We were those who stood condemned before a holy and righteous God and were awaiting the just sentence for our rebellion and eternal life of bearing the full weight of God's wrath. But listen, here is the unspeakable, glorious reality. Rather than extending the sword of judgment against us for our rebellion, the Lord extended the scepter of mercy and pardoned us from all our sins. And in an instant, we went from being not the people of God to being the people of God. We went from those who had not received mercy to those who have received mercy. We are those upon whom the Lord has had pity. Okay, So that's how Peter describes us right there. And what that should cause, if we understand that correctly, again, is just joy unspeakable. It's like, wow, God has dealt with me in this way. And look at the status that he's given me. As a child of God, and it should make us very, very, very humble people. We recognize, I didn't do anything. There's nothing that I've done. And how that affects us is we walk out into a world that desperately needs to hear the truth of God's word. We don't go with our noses lifted up like, hey, look at us. We're the people of God. It's like, can you believe the mercy that has come to us? We are the people of God, and here's the gospel, and I pray that you would repent and believe it, that you too might enter in to this status that we have been given. The final way that Peter describes our status is seen in the beginning of verse 11. Let me flip back there since my... He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... Sojourners and exiles. Both of these words are very similar in meaning. The word sojourner in the original language literally means alongside the house. Okay, Alongside the house. That's what the word sojourner means. And what's expressed by this word is a stranger or foreigner who is living in a land temporarily without the right of citizenship. He lives alongside the citizens of that country, but is not a citizen himself. And the word exile means one who comes from a foreign country into a land to reside there by the natives. And so what Peter is bringing out here so clearly for us is this. You don't belong here. And this concept is not unique to Peter. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. If you remember from last week, we looked at what Paul told the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 20. If you remember what he said, our citizenship is where? In heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
That's our home. That's where we belong. But in the meantime, we're sojourners and exiles here on this earth. Another passage that speaks to this end is Hebrews 11. Let's see if my... There we go. Okay. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. Somebody can read this for us. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they've gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he is prepared for them a city. Amen. So, verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And then listen to this astounding reality. For he has prepared for them a city. Hallelujah. That is where we're headed. That's our residence. Right? Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We're going to enter into that city one day. And how we long for that to come. And so Peter's just reminding them, listen, here's who you are as the people of God. Know who you are. Know why you're here. And now go into this world in which you're a foreigner and bring the gospel to them. Tell them of the kingdom of God. Okay, so that, that concludes the first part of our status. So I just want to kind of open that up to you. As, as you think about the different ways that were described here, what kind of thoughts come to your, to your mind? See a hand back there? Did anybody? No? Okay. okay. All right. Any, anybody else? Everybody else just too stunned by that reality? Okay. <laughs> I hope. That, your sleep. I would say that there are times when we feel so alienated and so different. Yeah. For instance, in work, work or social situations that you just, I don't fit. Yeah. I just don't fit here. It's, right. This is not who I am. Right. Right. Amen. I can't remember the exact quote that C.S. Lewis had, but it was to the extent that if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And I think that's the testimony of the Christian heart, is, is that you're just like, there, there's no substance here. There's something greater. There's something more that my heart is longing for, and that will be fulfilled one day. In one of the devotions I was reading this morning, we talked about how the reason God put in us a desire for something more. Amen. And the problem with most people in this world is that they are looking for perfection in this world. Right. Um, you know, from their family, from the, their vacations, from their jobs. Yeah. From everything there, right. and that is an impossible thing. That's right. It's only God. Yes. Is perfect. That's right. Only He can satisfy. I, I pondered that for a few minutes. Amen. It's just awesome. Amen. Amen. I was also thinking when you were talking about if somebody comes into the church. Yeah. And if the church is set up, you know, and and responding the way they should be. Right. And being holy, I, I always think of that verse that we are a sweet-smelling aroma to those oh, yeah. who want the Lord, yes. but we stink to those who don't. Amen. <laughs> no, that's that's a that's great my, point. Yeah. My revised version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Smell yeah. good to those that want the Lord, but yeah. I stink to those who don't. Yes. And the body of Christ really should have that reaction. Yeah. It should be a almost a violent reaction. Right. When they walk in, when we're Living yes. the way we should yes. be as a body of Christ and individuals. Amen. Good, when good they point. see Jesus in us, yes. you know, it should yep. either 
make them want that yes. Jesus or not? Right. Amen. Amen. Good. Good point. Excellent. Okay. Good. Good thoughts there. Let's take a look at this next next aspect. Um, that we'll we'll get out. So, lays out for us who we are as believers. But he also wants to make known what this implication of our status is. And that brings us to the second aspect of our identity as the body of Christ, which is our mission. Okay, our mission. Much has been said throughout the years about what the mission of the church is and what it isn't. And we don't have time to look at that extensively uh, this morning. But what, what is said about us here in 1 Peter 2, I think, is massively Helpful, And I want to show you two things that I see Peter saying about our mission as the church. This will kind of pick up on what we talked about last week when we talked about the importance of the gospel we preach from our lips being verified by our lives. Okay? That's what we see Peter pulling out here. So first, at the end of verse 9... After telling us who we are, you see, and we talked about this a little, little last week, Peter uses that word, that, to show the purpose behind our calling, the purpose behind our status. We are a chosen race, we're a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, we're God's own possession. And then notice this, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our mission is proclamation. Okay? And we are proclaiming, we are publishing, we are making known the greatness of who Christ is, especially in his work of redemption. In other words, we're proclaimers of this glorious gospel through which Christ has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And listen, whatever else the church may be, If we fail to be proclaimers of Christ, we are failing to do what we have been called to do. This is a theme that runs all throughout the scriptures, not just here in the New Testament. The people of God are to make known his redeeming power among the nations. Okay, let me walk you through a few passages out of the Psalms that speak to this end. Somebody can read this for us from Psalm 66, a couple Passages from that song. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God how awesome are your deeds. Come and see what God has done. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our foot slip. Okay, so here's, here's a declaration. Shout for joy to God, all the earth, right? Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Well, they're not going to know how awesome his deeds are unless they hear about them. Come and see what God has done. Sounds like the woman at the well, right? Bless our God, O peoples, right? So this is, some Psalms are distinctly oriented to Israel, Okay, telling them how they already react to God. But this one's just broadcasting it, right? Listen to this. Praise Him. All peoples. Okay? Psalm 73, verse 28. Let me go ahead and read that for us. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Notice that last, that the end part of that. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That... I may tell of all your works. So there's this proclamation that's coming out here. Psalm 96, verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord. Here it is again. All the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples, right? So there's just this thundering proclamation of God's greatness and his glory. And you, you, you know, you think about all these and you think about what Paul says in Romans 10, right? How are they going to believe unless someone tells them, 
right? Psalm 145, 3 through 7, if somebody can read that for us. Great is, sorry. Go ahead, Rachel. Uh Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Okay, good, right? So you just see that, again, that proclamation that's coming forth from the people. Okay, all of these point to the reality that we are saved to be proclaimers of this great salvation. Okay, telling of his salvation from day to day as the Lord would grant us opportunity. Now, when we look back in 1 Peter 1 here, our mission is one of proclamation. And then secondly, our mission is also sanctification. And this is a really important point. Okay, so we kind of hit on this a little bit last week, right? We proclaim it with our lips. We verify it by our lives, right? And that's what we see here in verses 11 and 12. Notice this in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Okay, so here it is, how you live. That's important. Keep it honorable. And here's the reason for it. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Obviously, Peter is probably thinking back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 about this aspect of our good deeds being seen and that they would give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Okay, So let's talk about this aspect and see why this is so important. Notice here in verse 11, what does Peter start out with? He starts out by talking about sanctification. And in the first place, he's talking about inner sanctification, the need for that. We need to be sanctified within. He urges us, because of who we are, because of all the things he's just said about us, because we're this holy nation, this royal priesthood, this chosen race, because of who we are, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. Listen, even though we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, we're sojourners and exiles here on earth, we still have the remnants of our fleshly nature battling against the new nature that we have been given in Christ. Don't you love how Peter lays that out? It's like, here's who you are, but here's the war that you're still in, right? And that battle, as we know, will not cease until glory. Therefore, it's essential that we take action against it. And notice the, the, the wording that Peter uses here. He, he talks about this in such a way that the old nature that remains is not here just to bother you a bit and impede your growth into the image of Christ. It remains to kill you. Right? The purpose of war is to kill not to simply be a nuisance to your enemy. And that is what your flesh is seeking to do. We see Paul talking about this in Romans chapter 8 as well. If we don't make war against our flesh, our sinful ways will be evident to a watching world, and our testimony as God's people will be greatly hindered. Okay, So we must be holy within first and foremost. We must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We must starve to death and not feed those things that seek to destroy our souls. That's what it means to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't feed it. Starve it. And we all have those areas that we're more susceptible to be tempted, and we must be diligently guarding our hearts to know where those areas are. And and that's also, listen, that's also the blessing of an intimate fellowship with one another. As we spend time together and we get to know one another more, we're able to help identify those areas of weakness in each other's lives and be instruments of sanctification and helping one another to defeat the passions of the flesh. So Peter reminds them, based on who you are, the fact that you're sojourners and exiles here, make war. (laughs) Make war against 
these fleshly passions that arise within you. But also, we see here in verse 12, we're to be outwardly holy. So not only inwardly holy, but outwardly holy as well. And indeed, listen, the one springs forth from the other, okay? Or else we're just pharisaical. If we're not really inwardly holy and we're just doing it as a pretense before men, right? So the focus needs to be on the inner and it will manifest itself in the outer, okay? This is what Peter means in the first part of verse 12. We're to behave in such a way that outsiders would look at our lives and see them as commendable even if they hate them. And during the time in which Peter was writing, Christians were accused. There was interesting things that were being labeled against Christians. They were being accused of rebelling against the Roman government, right? Caesar is Lord. Nope, Jesus is Lord. That's treason. They were, these are extra biblical sources that show these things, but they were uh, being accused of practicing cannibalism. Why do you think that would be? The supper. Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ, right? Seeing they're cannibalistic. They were being accused of engaging in incest, practicing atheism by not worshiping Caesar or the Roman gods, okay? So they were considered evildoers because of this in the society in which they lived. They were considered evildoers. That's why Peter says, when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay? Many false accusations are made against the church today. Right? Jesus told us this. Blessed are you when they persecute you and say all, all, all sorts of evil things against you falsely on my account. Right? So nothing can actually stick to you. And this is what we are called to do. It's interesting in this verse that Peter assumes that the Christians to whom he is writing will be doing good deeds to those who speak evil of them. Undoubtedly, again, he remembered the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 11 and 16. Somebody want to read that for us? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that's a challenging thought for us. I remember um, back some time ago, one of the brothers said to me on a, a couple of occasions when we were talking about being witnesses in our unbelieving community around us, asked such a penetrating question just pierced me when he asked it. He didn't intend it to be piercing, but he said, if Faith Baptist ceased to exist in our community, would our community even know it? That's a convicting question. Listen, I understand that the unbelieving community is going to hate our message and what we stand for. But are we making an impact by doing good deeds within our unbelieving community so that they will glorify God on the day of visitation? That is, on the day when God brings them the truth of who he is. You know, it's really interesting. I live close to a half hour away from Yes, yep. And yet, when I get into conversations with people and they ask me what church I go to, yeah. and I tell them, they know us. Praise the Lord. Yeah, and I'm talking up in Longwood. It happened to me when I was in Winter Springs. The same thing. I said, I say, oh, is that the one I bumped in? That's right. Yeah. Praise the Lord. That's that's good. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Amen. And so hopefully they were, were making, and, and you know, I'm not just speaking about the houses right here in our community necessarily, but but where we are, right, in the Greater Orlando area. Are we making such an impact? And again, as Diana Lynn mentioned in that passage that she was referring to in 2 Corinthians, that aspect of are we the aroma of life leading to life and the aroma of death leading to death, right? Are, are, we, are we disseminating that fragrance to the community that is around us? Some are going to love it. Some are going to hate it. But at least they know we're here. <laughs> 
and we're bringing the gospel to them. So Peter has in mind here when he's talking both our lips and our lives testifying to the glory of who God is. So in verse 9, we're proclaiming it with our lips. Verse 12, we're verifying that message with our lives. They must go together if God is truly going to be glorified. So as we think about evangelism and every other aspect of the Christian life for that matter, we must never forget who we truly are and why it is that we are here. We are the people of God who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, indeed God's very own possession. Peter tells us we're here to proclaim his excellencies, to show forth his glory and his majesty, to both know him and to make him known, both within the church in our fellowship with one another and outside the church to a lost and dying world. And listen, let let us never forget where it is that we're going. We as sojourners and exiles here on this earth are on that glorious pilgrimage that our brothers and sisters have taken before us. We're pressing on to that city whose builder and maker is God. We're awaiting the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells and sin will be no more. And so we pray that God would ingrain these realities into our hearts afresh of who we are and why we're here. We're proclaimers. We're meant to tell the nations about the glory of God. We're not just kind of coasting, waiting for our time to finish up here on earth to get into glory. We're in a war, and we're seeking to bring as many with us as we possibly can. And that's what Peter's telling his readers to do. And I pray that would be an encouragement for us as well as we see this lost and dying world around us that desperately needs to hear the truth. Okay, Jack. You know, sometimes we forget that, that people are really listening and looking at our lives. We, we are being scrutinized daily. Whether you think it happens or not, I'll give you a quick example. I was at lunch with a bunch of our technicians and our boss.